0: Legalize dot
1: Greetings and welcome once again to legalize dot com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Chris Nynum, who joins us to discuss his book, How the Establishment Lost Control, and also some of the political, economic and social turmoil of our time. From the Scottish referendum to the Brexit debacle and the shock election of Jeremy Corbyn as UK Labour leader and Donald Trump as US President, the post-war consensus is breaking up. This turmoil testifies to an insurgent mood amongst great swathes of the population both at home and abroad. How the establishment lost control attempts to explain these dramatic developments and to show how they question received notions about politics, history, and how change happens. Above all, they challenge widespread assumptions about the resilience of elite hegemony, the influence of conventional structures of thought, and the ability of the mass of the population to think autonomously in a post-ideological age. At the close of the 20th century, We were told, and millions of us believed, that the neoliberal New World Order was here to stay and that it was simply a matter of time before its now incontrovertible benefits touched all corners of the globe. The polarization, upheaval, and often chaotic events of the early 21st century, however, portend a very different future teeming with threats and uncertainty. But within this flux and deep doubt, there also exists the potential for positive change should we choose to seize the moment. Hello and welcome, Chris, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com.
0: Nice to be here.
1: Chris, today we're going to be talking about a recent book of yours, How the Establishment Lost Control. Before we jump into that, just tell listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work in general.
0: Well, I suppose I'm a uh, an activist. I'm very uh, involved in the anti-war movement uh, in the Stop the War Coalition. One of the organisers of it have been since it was set up back in 2001. I'm a socialist. Uh, I'm an author. I've written a few books on subjects that are kind of related to this. And I've done a certain amount of of kind of academic research into into some of the questions surrounding these issues as well.
1: Okay, well, just to set the scene uh, for what we're going to discuss, maybe we should think about the background of events and how we got where we are today in terms of politics, economics, the social order. There was a time that we both lived through the 1980s and through into the 1990s. Uh, we had the era of Thatcher and Reagan. You know, they revolutionised a lot of aspects of their respective nations. And this, of course, had ripple effects throughout the world. We had the collapse of the Soviet Union. We had Francis Fukuyama's end of history type idea. And there really was a feeling at a certain point that the neoliberal sort of new world order was here to stay. It finally triumphed. There were just a few remaining corners of the globe, but yet to feel its, um, you know, to bask in its glory. But in uh, next to no time, there's one system more or less would straddle the world and all those alternatives that had been tr- tried and proved to be wanting in the past would finally be thrown into the dustbin of history and we'd march off into a bright glowing future however that's not qu- quite how things have turned out
0: yeah well i mean i uh, as you suggest um in a way unfortunately i've lived through many of these and been involved in many of the the struggles that attended the um the kind of imposition of of neoliberalism by um, uh, establishments and elites all around the world and and in some ways pioneered by the British ruling class and the Americans. Um, And they have obviously been utterly decisive in shaping our lives. And, you know, for the first time in um, really since the Second World War, I think people now feel as if, um, their lives are probably worse than their parents lives and their children's lives will be worse than their own, which is a, a kind of novel experience and and one that I think is quite, you know, um, an influential one and and having a big effect on society. But one of the things that um, I argue that's central to the book is that the, the kind of um, commentary at the liberal and even some of the left commentary have been very surprised by the unraveling of this uh, kind of free market regime that we've all lived under for the last 30, 40 years. And one of the things that I point out is that they really shouldn't be because while it's true that the elites, that neoliberalism has become a kind of consensual set of ideas amongst the elites in many parts of the world. and whole sections of the kind of middle class commentary are bought into them as well and regarded them as being set in stone and, and and actually sort of decisively won if you like for the vast majority of the population they've been been experienced as a kind of horrible shock and awe and really never been accepted and i think one of the big mistakes that at least parts of the left has made over the last 30 years is to kind of assume that really people have bought into the free market and that Thatcherism you know, when Thatcher said, Oh, there is an alternative that that, you know, that was what people really felt. Well actually, as I go through in the book, you know, even in the, the darkest days of Thatcher's attacks on the miners and her serial election victories and the Falklands and so forth, even then the 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 mainstream opinion polls showed that most working people really didn't like it, rejected the free market, didn't buy into the idea that privatisation was good, felt that, you know, a lot of the kind of things that are regarded as old-fashioned, that, you know, there should be more taxes on the rich, there should be more spending on the welfare state and so forth. People remained uh, convinced of those ideas. Social democratic consciousness never went away. And so the fact that it's kind of re-erupted uh, after 35 years of this experience, really shouldn't surprise anyone. In a way, I'm surprised that it took so long, and that's another story. But, um, I mean, I think it's an indication of just how remote the right, the journalists on The Guardian and at the BBC and blah, 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 are from the experience of ordinary people, that anyone was, was taken by surprise by, by the kind of things that have happened.
1: I mean, I remember the point in time in the 1980s where, you know, the right to buy... And this is in the UK of council houses for you know for tenants and privatization of utilities. You know, like British Gas, for example, being the big one and the campaign around that. Looking back, those were just kind of like bribes in a way that were yeah they were part of the government's overall agenda. But in my experience, anyway, the time when people there was some kind of feel good factor and maybe people were you know on the up and uh, yes, you know we we had a lot of privatization, a lot of industries being. Uh Wind down or offshore or whatever, but you know that you could point to people doing better. It was actually quite quite a narrow window. There was a little bit of a purple patch, but it it wasn't how it was portrayed in the media because mm. throughout the nineteen nineties, which is the main decade I think we car- characterized i think perhaps in some ways in the u k certainly by Uh, Tony Blair and his, you know, things can only get better and, you know, new labor and all of that. It was a, a really quite short window in time and it wasn't long before Blair found himself in trouble and that gloss wore off. And the same thing happened with Bill Clinton in the US at that time. And in the 1990s, I well remember traveling around the country and people struggling with the same issues as they always had. And just throw in a slight curveball. I felt that the events of 9/11 and then the whole onslaught of the war and terror and all that terrible stuff we've been trudging through ever since had made people think differently about what was important about their lives, and it it threw open a lot of issues and shone a light in world affairs in a way that I can't really describe. I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but I just felt that something changed. And suddenly the platitudes of politicians, you know, people like Blair and consumerism and material goods and these things that could be delivered by capitalism, they just they kind of lost their veneer and their gloss a little bit.
0: I think you're absolutely right about that. And I've, I mean, a couple of other things. I mean, one is that I think, it, I mean, it's obviously true that people did take up the right to buy. Um, some people or lots of people and and that uh, you know obviously people did buy the shares and stuff, but I mean that you know it it's important not to make a kind of simple equation between people doing that and people thinking that it's necessarily the right thing to do. I mean they did it because it was available, and there didn't seem to be any kind of opposition to it. but I think it's very important to see in the eighties and the early nineties that there was a kind of terrible failure of leadership in the labor movement that there was all these arguments knocking around uh, from Neil Kinnock and from the Ron Todds and the and the trade union leaders at the time that, you know, workers had been bought off and that the re- everyone believed the sun. And, you know, all the opinion polls show that, that actually people didn't read the sun because they thought it was good politically. They read it for, you know, the cartoons and, you know, maybe the page three at worst. But nevertheless, it didn't mean that they bought into Murdoch um and and there was a kind of i mean even on the more radical left there was this sort of thing about you know postmodernism and this kind of you know post-fordist world in which class no longer mattered meanwhile the working class was suffering and actually fighting as well you know the minor strike happened in the middle of all this it was the, one of the biggest working class struggles this country's ever seen so it, it, it's a complicated, um, it's a complicated story, and I don't want to be too simplistic about it. But I think it's very important to see that the anger and the bitterness and the class, even a serious level of class consciousness was sustained throughout the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. And, and Blairism was a very contradictory, paradoxical moment because when you know when people voted in. ...in droves for Labour in 1997... ...they thought they were voting for change... ...but actually what they were doing... ...was voting for a kind of... ...watered down thatcher Light, ...kind of slightly modified version... ...that had been um, imported into the Labour Party... ...so there was this, like you say... ...there was a kind of... ...there was a a strange ideological turmoil... ...which I think people... ...it took a bit of time for people to realise... ...what was going on... ...but definitely... ...by the time that Tony Blair... ...hooked up with George Bush... And, you know, so explicitly nailed his um, his colours to the mast of the kind of neocon experiment and the neocon project, people were getting more and more um, wound up by him. And I think there is a sense in which, you know, the Iraq war um, in itself was a kind of, you know, everyone really thought it was going to be a terrible thing, but it, it kind of crystallised. A sense that something had gone very wrong with the Labour leadership and that, you know, there was really a, a, a kind of toxic problem at the heart of new Labour. And that partly explains why there was such a massive, you know, because before it, remember, and many people won't, you know, even know, obviously, but there was a there was something called the anti-capitalist movement in the years from 2000 to, well, ninety from 1999 to sort of early in the next decade, there were these huge mobilizations, some of which I was involved in, actually, against the World Trade Organization, against the GA and the IMF, you know, hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating around the world um, against the sort of neoliberal capitalist order. And that was one of the backdrops to the kind of eruption, the insurgent anti-war movement that, that, um, that developed around the question of Iraq. So I think you're right to say that Iraq was more than about the war, it was about war, but it was about, of a sort of visceral sense, that there was, there w- there was a kind of poison at the heart of the, of the political uh, uh, establishment. And I think that partly explains the massive outpouring of anger that, that resulted
1: from what we've been saying about the sequence of events unfolding over decades, and you you mentioned earlier about the surprise of many of the elites about some relatively recent turns of events. If you think about it, I mean, Brexit, Trump, Scottish independence, uh, Bernie Sanders' emergence, Corbyn, even Farage and, and UKIP, these things have been decades in the making. Mm. And they're all a result of so many avenues of expression being suppressed, so much of the same old, same old from political parties, the inability to get a cigarette paper between the major parties in in the UK, even sometimes in the US and many European countries in terms of policy. And Brexit itself became something of a lightning conductor. People were voting not necessarily for Brexit itself, but for something different. And as we now discover, didn't even know what they were going to get, but it's like anything any other flavor of bullshit other than the one we're getting we're just going to try something different you know it really was a case of um almost like russian roulette in a way this could go horribly wrong but we just can't take more and more of the same i think there's an element
0: of uh well there's more than an element of truth in that i think there was a kind of rebellion there was a kind of you know it partly represented a rebellion and a kind of rejection of what existed and this was the only option we got and i mean one of the things about the whole brexit vote is that Famously stupid move by David Cameron But it wasn't just stupid At a party political level Or a personal level It was disastrous really for, for British politics Because it kind of channeled um, A lot of Very mixed feelings And very deeply held uh, Sense of um, exclusion and, and anger and And class resentment Through a question that really couldn't kind of handle that those different ideas and, and actually it wasn't until that point a question that was particularly much on people's minds but it just was an opportunity for people to to make a statement i I put it slightly differently though i'd say that you know there was obviously a very mixed bag of kind of different um reasons why people voted brexit but you know there is a kind of central issue here that does speak very uh, directly to i think people's concerns and their legitimate concerns which is the question of sovereignty or democracy put in another way and i think people felt that and still do feel that over the last 30 years you know whatever minimal control um people have had over their lives and over the Society they live in has been reduced massively that the kind of political and economic order has taken no account of, of what people want and has actually snatched away many of the things that people had struggled for over decades, the welfare state and the certain job security and the right to have trade unions and all of these things. And that the, the way the, this expressed itself was through a sense of we have no control and people said, you know, well, Hang on a minute. Maybe it's got some connection with the fact that, you know, a lot of political decisions are being made in Brussels uh, by people who actually aren't, many of whom aren't elected because there's clearly a huge, bigger democratic deficit in Brussels than there is in Westminster. And so, I mean, I think there's a rational, there's a rational core to the, to the argument. A large number of people who voted Brexit felt, which is that, you know, we need to get control back over our lives. And, you know, this distant bureaucracy in, in Brussels is, is completely out of our control. So I can very much understand that. And, you know, that's why, I mean, each of the cases you cite, the Corbyn case, the Scottish independence case, the, uh, the Trump thing is a, is a whole nother question because it's not in Britain. But, you know, they're all different instances that work in with, that have different dynamics, but they are all connected to this, very, very central experience of the whole political and social reality of the last 35 years, which is that, you know, working people's lives have been attacked massively and our conditions and our, the resources that we have some sort of access to have been taken away, but also that our democratic access has been taken away access to any kind of democracy has been massively eroded and taken away. whether it's local councils being you know having their the funding reduced massively whether it's the 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 fact that like you say the difference between the political parties has been reduced to almost nothing until recently so all of these things have have created a visceral a whole series of explosive reactions and And, you know, it's incredible that even now, it's not just that the elites don't seem to grasp this, or most of them don't, but that, you know, a lot of the liberal commentariats simply seem incapable of understanding it, or certainly don't want to understand it, because I think they, you know, we underestimate the extent to which the the Blair moment was a moment when, you know, a lot of the more privileged, sort of upper middle class people felt people who kinda of run the T V stations and edit the newspapers, they felt, Oh, at last everyone accepts that the free market is right and that making money isn't a crime and profits are good and they benefit everyone and oh, there was this moment when it really did appear as if there was no alternative intellectually and that was a moment that 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 layer of society embraced, I think, with um with joy, with joy. <laughs> and they can't break from it because the nightmare is that the, the ghost of socialism and socialist ideas is actually returning in the, in the guise of the unlikely guise of the member for Islington North. So, you know, this is a this is a shock that they 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 can't understand, and they certainly don't want to understand. And they don't want to accept, which explains their hostility to him.
1: Yeah, you know, this lack of agency that that we've been referring to is really I felt by millions of people. is really key here. And the uh, the liberal media, or liberal commentariat, as you call it, which I don't quite like that phrase. They they played a part here in this too, of course, bringing these issues to a head by basically demonising people who wanted change. Some of whom have been attempting to enact some of this change or get back some control, however mistakenly some people might say, you know, voting for Brexit because they're really Mm. not not sure what else to do. And the liberal media, of course, uh, you know, demonized um, Trump in the US and uh, Farage and UKIP here and, you know, Le Pen in France, for example. And it doesn't matter what you think about these people. The point is the mainstream media demonized them. They went out of their way to kill their message, to ridicule it, and the people who support them. But they, what they then did, effectively in many ways, was try to lump all these people together. Ergo, mm. so if you're going to vote for Brexit, no matter what your reasoning or thinking, you are also with the far right and racists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And... That became very polarizing because a lot of people didn't want to be lumped in with that. The, the polarization in some ways it might be seen, uh, that we see in politics might actually be, you know, the beginning of a process of this resolving itself. Poles have to be go very far apart in order f- for the situation itself to be resolved. You know, when a problem becomes so intractable, something has to change. Maybe you have to go through darks before dawn. I suppose is the best way to express <laughs> it.
0: Well, I mean, I think, I think there's two things here. It's like, I think the potential for there being a kind of useful development and useful evolution of a, of a kind of new movement for democracy and, and, and some return to people actually taking control of their lives is definitely there. But it does depend, as you suggest, on, on the left actually being able to, to, to make some, um, some quite tricky calls and also to, to not kind of go along with the 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 mainstream sort of liberal interpretation here because the, on the one hand there's a kind of total lack of understanding in the mainstream about the, the shocks that have taken place but on the other hand unconnected, there's also a kind of rolling everything together so people talk about trump and brexit in the same breath when in fact they're you know, I'm not saying that, that there is a connection between the two things, but they are very, very different. And we have to be very concrete about our analysis in particular situations. Uh, you know, and there's a sort of thing about populism. That, But, I mean, what does the word populism really mean when you get down to it? I mean, I think it, it can be a useful term if it's used to describe a kind of fake radical right uh, appeal to the to the to the nation or to the or to the people, but i mean you know there 's nothing really that connects in terms of political content trump and jeremy corbyn they two. there are other there are opposite ends of the poll um you know and in every way they're they're they 're contrasted i mean jeremy's a ultra democrat apart from anything else. Whereas Donald Trump clearly is the opposite, and so, so you know, the, we've got to be much smarter. The left has got to be much smarter, and you know, we mustn't just continue to, to sort of just accept categories that are being promoted by the mainstream media. Because I mean, these people don't understand anything about what's going on. And I think it's um, that's that's one crucially important uh, element of the situation if we're going to be able to, to make the most of the situation. And I think we need to also think, you know, very carefully about the whole the whole question of the EU, really, because the fact that there are people on the left who are arguing seriously that well, there should be a second referendum, you know, whatever your views about the first referendum, however you voted first time round, it seems to me that it's extremely dangerous to be promoting the idea that there should be a second referendum. Because, I mean, you know, this will play into the right wing's depiction of the uh, the left as being part of the kind of Westminster liberal elite that doesn't accept a vote when it happens and just calls for a re-vote until they get the result they want. The, the, the crucial thing about a serious left at the moment is we've got to be the insurgents. I mean, it's not being radical that's the problem or that's off-putting to people at the moment, it's been looking like the status quo. And the truth is that the vast, you know, the overwhelming bulk of the British ruling class want us to stay in Europe, um, would like that Brexit decision to be reversed. Um, And if the left, you know, positions itself alongside those elites, we're going to end up in a very, very dangerous uh, situation. So I think you know, the level of analysis and understanding on the left needs to be deepened in order for us to take this. Well, I agree with you, we've got big opportunities at the moment. And I thought, for example, I thought Jeremy's position of, you know, pe- a people's Brexit was an intelligent way to respond to the situation because, we, you know, we need to bring together everyone on the left and find a way forward in a situation where people are divided. But at the same time, we can't fall into just... um you know, to following what the the lead of the liberals, because that, as I say, will will be um, will be disastrous. So I think I think one thing about the situation is, you know, there needs to be a much deeper set of analyses of what's going on on the left in order to guide us forward.
1: Well, as far as the second referendum in the UK on. EU membership goes. I can understand why people feel that, or some people can claim at least that, you know, there was a, a very vague, nebulous offer was put to people as far as, you know, the vote goes. And, uh, th- that was essentially because it was never actually sort of meant to happen, so to speak. I mean, Cameron did it, um, as a way, as a sop to elements within the Conservative Party. It was like this issue's just been dogging them for like so long. Okay. Let's have this vote. Let's, it'll be theater. Let's get it on, get it over with. Yes, there's going to be a significant vote to leave. Uh, we'll deal with that, but ultimately it's not going to go through. So we don't have to have a a comprehensive plan. We don't really have to have a coherent anything. It can just be a lot about headlines and, you know, emotive appeals to how people feel about things Uh, and doesn't have to, it can be quite superficial. And then lo and behold, Massive shock to the system. Oh, my God, this has actually happened. And again, I I do keep drawing parallels with other events elsewhere in the world, like the election of Trump. And I totally understand your point about these being distinct things. But I I think they're linked in important ways, regardless of the color of the politics. And what you describe is already happening as far as a second vote. And there's there's lots of people um, in favor of it. And there's a movement for it. I mean, only today in the news, I think, was one of the leading... British uh, unions came out and supported a call for it.
0: Well, I mean, just on the, the just on the, the the stuff you rightly say about the, the kind of low level of discussion and debate during the first referendum. I mean, that's true. But then, you know, I mean, these are debates that are being led by uh, an elite that really is not that interested in a clear discussion and debate about the issues, because you know. If you actually got down to it, you'd end up talking about things they'd rather not talk about. So, I mean, I don't think necessarily that a second referendum would be any clearer because you'd still have uh, essentially an establishment desperately trying to convince people by hook or by crook to vote for a, a European Union that has, whatever else you can say about it, has been presiding over and has been one of the main drivers of the whole neoliberal experiment And has led, and has been, you know, hugely influential in the situation where people's living standards have been cut, wages have been cut, precarity has increased, there's there's a huge level of privatization and so on and so forth. So, you know, don't expect, uh, if there was another referendum that we're going to have, you know, a sudden outburst, outbreak of rationality on the, or, or clarity or even honesty on the part of those. Involved of what would still be an elite led debate on both sides if if it did happen I mean, I think that I mean, I don't know what the result would be, but all the indications are it wouldn't be massively different from um, from the one that, uh, that, that happened a couple of years ago uh, It might go marginally the other way, but even if it did what you would see would be uh, a huge um sense of anger and 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 outrage, a massively increased uh feeling that uh you know democracy in this country was a sham that the elites would do anything to get their way. Uh, the truth is it was said at the time and these these are crucial questions when it comes to democracy. It was said at the time the way that a referendum was framed was that you know this would be the moment when... The question was decided, and that was what was said at the time. And once you go back on that, really, democracy just becomes relative. You know, I mean, I don't particularly like referenda, but in the end of the day, that's what happened, that's how it was pitched, and you, 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 you relativize that whole process massively at your risk. And I think, you know, really you would have almost inevitably, especially if the, if the left was campaigning for a remain vote you would risk a huge rise in the power and the strength of right-wing forces whether they were the right wing in the tory party or the right outside of the you know beyond the tory party far-right forces or both Uh, i don't know but i mean I'm, i'm sure it would be both actually because you know, this would be a gift, it would be a gift uh, to to the kind of, you know, the the far right which is trying to reorganise itself and it is to some extent resurgent and, and, you know, I think it would be a, a, a desperately bad mistake I think it would be wrong in itself, I think it would be wrong on principle and I think it would have appalling um, results in British society Whatever people voted in the in the thing themselves, we have to accept that 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 is what the decision uh, has been, and we have to work with that decision as best we can.
1: Well, of course, the general argument has been that yes, people voted this way, but it was almost like, but they didn't have enough information. But as you say, if you then went to a second referendum and then tried to have a more informed, reasoned, opened debate of the issues and potential policies and what have you be in exactly the same position which is people don't really want to get down to brass tacks about this because some uncomfortable things would come to light i just don't see an end to that because that characterizes a lot of politics anyway and also as you alluded to if there was a second referendum and the vote went slightly the other way what the first referendum left us with was a small majority of people who were feeling quite pleased with themselves and now a lot of them probably quite disillusioned and a large minority of people who were really angry, you would just have that in reverse. If mm. the decision was reversed, I'm not really sure how that leaves us in a more unified, and you know better place to move forward from.
0: That's true. And also, I mean, the other thing is, you know, those people on the left who are trying to make this the central issue are making a huge mistake because it's, you know, again, whatever you may think of the question, it's not the central issue. It's not really the thing that, that ultimately, in a, in a sort of deep way, animates people. Because what, you know, the, 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 the kind of driving force of people's um, political stances and political um, attitudes is really things, things that, you know, affect everyday life. And whether you're within or without the uh, the European Union we're going to have to fight to stop the privatization of the NHS we are going to have to um, work very hard to rebuild the trade union movement we 're going to have to you know have huge campaigning organizations to take on the privatization of of services and to you know stop the attacks on the welfare state and so on and so forth so the idea that that that, that Uh, The EU is the central question Is in a way playing You know it's one of the It's actually one of the things that has played quite well For the establishment in general Even though it has divided the Tory party In a way that is a big problem for them On the other hand It has its kind of a prism That has kind of Focused politics in a way that, That sort of distorts Or hides the central issues I mean you know Who's talking about austerity at the moment Really austerity is accelerating incredibly the level of of, of of cutbacks is reaching a critical point in many parts of the country services are just falling apart and people's lives are being massively damaged and the left is going on about you know we need a second referendum on the eu or the parts of the left are that's not clever it's not sensible it's in our interests to focus on the on the issues that really affect our lives deeply and and take them on you know, frankly, so there's a kind of, you know, there's a sort of like way in which
1: the whole EU question is, I'm not
0: saying it's not important, but there is a real sense in which it is a distraction.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I pay attention to the mainstream media in the UK and uh, well, around the world to some extent, just as a way, a bit of a barometer of, of what's going on out there, I want to know what most people are hearing, and... Every day, I cannot remember. I think I would have made a note of it, you know, the date and the time, if I could remember. In recent times, having heard a news bulletin that did not feature an item, one or more mm. items on Brexit and one or more items on Donald Trump. Uh, there's many other things that recur again and again, but those are two things It's like Brexit, Trump, Brexit, Trump, day in, day out, and you know that just that exactly reflects that you know the obsession that you're just you've just mentioned.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, you know, the the sort of, the elite media have got a, a, a killer instinct in this. They might not be able to actually explain why, but they do sense that, you know, this is in a, in a certain way, this is good for them, because it takes politics away from issues of class, and it, it kind of, you know, it clouds a, a clear analysis of the situation, and so to that extent, they kind of, you know, they sort of, they're sort of, you know, magnetised by it, really, because... <laughs> Um, and rightly so from their point of view because it is it is it's kind of creating this fog over over british politics and the and the and the sooner we can get beyond it really um the better, which is another reason why a second referendum would be disastrous you know because it would be like we'd have another year of the whole thing and i don't i failed to see how that would how that would help you know we, i'm not saying that we shouldn't have serious debates and discussions about the EU. I think it's very important that we do. But it so dominates the political terrain and it's one of the reasons why Theresa May has been able to survive, actually, in two senses. One in the sense that she's the only way that the Tory party can think of, sort of, someone who has at least, in their view, some kind of outside chance of squaring the circle in the tory party and in the establishment of of, of, about um the eu but secondly the the whole eu question has has actually just distracted people's attention from from the the carnage that has been created by tory policies in this country for the vast majority of the population so you know it's not been a good experience (laughs) really
1: you referenced, you know, everyday issues that affect people's lives, you know, in this sort of here and now. And, and we also mentioned the resurgence of the far right um, across Europe, you know, here in the UK, but of course France, Germany, Italy, Greece, Poland, Hungary, even in liberal Sweden, popping up all over the place. And one of the things that many of these parties and movements are doing is appealing to people on the level of everyday things that matter to people trying to get on with their lives, you know, and saying that, you know, the elites are ignoring this downplaying it, whatever sort of specter they're invoking, you know, whether it's globalization perhaps or immigration, whatever it happens to be. And so they're using that absolutely as a tool. And in many ways, there are people who, or, you know, ordinary, otherwise moderate people, you know, individuals who would perhaps read a manifesto by one of these organizations or parties and say, well, actually, you know, I agree with that, but that could equally be towards the, you know, the, on the right of the spectrum, but also the left, because these sim, there's a, I guess there's a commonality here. And that's another thing that is uncomfortable for some people is that parties at the mainstream, let's say parties that the liberal media, media would consider to be far right, quote unquote, or far left can actually have, can appeal to people who in many ways their lives look similar, their life situations look similar
0: yeah, Absolutely, and well they can appeal to the same people, I mean you know it's absolutely clear that's true historically um, you know, not that fascist parties in general in the, in the past have have had working class support at their core, but nevertheless they have been able to appeal to sections of the working class and sort of fringes the working class there's no question about that and you know i mean you can see not that ukip is a fascist party obviously but there was it was clear in 2015 that jeremy corbyn's kind of sort of radical appeal for for change from below and from you know a, a, a more a fairer society and so forth actually did did win some people over who voted for ukip you know something like 30 or 40% of the people who came away from UKIP came to Labour in the last election. So, um, so yeah, that's that's true. But I mean, they on the other hand, they're very different. I think we should resist the temptation to, you know, suggest that that they're fundamentally or essentially similar. Because to the extent that you know, far right, the UKIPs or the Football Lads Alliances or the or the the AFD in Germany or these kind of far right parties to the extent that they sort of reflect class resentment they do it in a fake way they uh, attack the elites um rhetorically uh, but they don't what they don't do is develop a serious strategy for working people to improve their lives by winning you know redistributive policies or um beating privatization and so on so you know the left does have an advantage here because the left actually can put forward policies that really do make lives better for working people, whereas the right is um, is, is relying on kind of culture wars and, and propaganda and obviously racism as well, which is a kind of displaced, a way of displacing or diverting the, the anger that people feel against fake enemies, whereas what the left can do is target the real problem And that's the great advantage that the left has but that speaks of the importance of you know being radical and and getting to the heart of the matter which is which is one of the big arguments we've got to have in the whole sort of corbynite you know experience there's many people even even who are involved in it at the top particularly who are very nervous about being too radical who don't want to you know talk about you know taxing the rich or um you know, radical new ways of organising nationalisation and so on. It's like all being against the war or, you know, the current, in my opinion, bad mistake of, of moving away from f- support for the Palestinians. You know, this is too radical. Actually, it's what, what people who are really angry want to feel, want to see, is a left that is serious about real fundamental change. Because that's... Um, that people feel fundamentally angry what's going on in society. And in left the left does that. It will never be able to challenge the right. I mean obviously there's lots of things that we have to do about the far right, but one of them is we need to have a left wing movement and a, and and political organisation in this country that is openly being seen to be radical and being seen to be fighting for some sort of Fundamental change in society, and that's exactly why Corbyn was so popular because he was that, and he was prepared to be, and he still is actually. But that element of him, that quality, that essential quality in him and the project, I think, is at the moment up for questioning, and and that there's a real struggle around those questions.
1: Well, I mean, just a brief word about uh, You mentioned, you know, the Palestinians. I'm sure you've been following this recent thread. In the uh, news with the Labour Party, which kind of come to a head yesterday, or I mean, supposedly some sort of resolution whereby Corbyn and Labour adopt a certain definition of anti-Semitism. And as far as Israel and Palestine goes, I don't really have a dog in the fight. There's good and bad on both sides as far as I'm concerned. I understand it's a matter of degrees. I grew up in Northern Ireland, very, very polarised situation there during the 70s and 80s. It was good and bad on both sides. But my point is, to me, this clearly looks like something. I mean, they've been trying all sorts of smear tactics with Corbyn since he got into the leadership position, but this is just another thing to A, any sort of tactic they can possibly get to get that guy out, but also it's a way of just completely smoke screening any other sort of discussion about anything whatsoever.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's, you know, dominated the, the whole political agenda during the summer at a time when. You know, the Corbyn and the, the the Labour Party should have been going on the offensive against an extremely weak and you know divided and incompetent government. So that is one element of it. And and secondly, again, as you say, I mean, you know, the idea that Jeremy Corbyn is uh, as Jonathan Sachs claimed. To be compared to the racist Enoch Powell, uh, or that he's anti-Semitic or racist in any way, is so patently absurd that it should have been enough to tell to 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 convince everyone on the left that although obviously anti-Semitism is a problem and is an issue and needs to be dealt with, nevertheless, this wasn't primarily about anti-Semitism. This is about a continued campaign to try and disorganise and ultimately defeat the whole Corbyn project that is what has been going on here and I think it was a big mistake yesterday that the that the the Labour Party NEC you know essentially caved in and capitulated even to the extent of rejecting a policy document or a a, 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 a press statement that Jeremy himself put forward I mean that is monumentally stupid in the face of a witch hunt which is essentially what is going on here um anyone who has any knowledge of history um should know that the only way to deal with a witch hunt is to stand up to it and take it on and try and defeat it and it wouldn't be that it wouldn't have been or it wouldn't be that hard to do it in this case because a the, the, the argument that is being put forward is so patently ridiculous. And I, and I actually think, you know, most people in the country just must be thinking, what are they talking about? Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semite. Mean, I'm not saying that it's not having an effect. I'm sure it is having an effect on the margins. But, you know, it's not a very strong case. And the fact that the left has prevaricated and retreated and that Jeremy himself has apologized and, you know, this was, foolish and it has only encouraged those people who are trying to destroy him and even now you know this decision was supposed to the accepting of the full IHRA definitions with all the examples was supposed to draw a line under it of course it hasn't I mean Margaret Hodge who's one of the main aggressors and um, Protagonist here. She uh, said, you know, days before the vote, you know, I won't be satisfied if they accept this because I'm after Corbyn. What more do you want? You know, what more evidence do you want uh, that this is a a fight to the death, really, about whether the Corbyn project is going to continue? And you know, retreating on these things or surrendering, which is what's happened in this case, has no benefit. Certainly is a terrible message to send to the Palestinian people but it's also a very very bad message to send to the Labour right here on the attack because it says yeah they're going to back down so let's keep hitting them let's keep punching them because they're not fighting back and until we fight back we're going to be um, on the losing side of this one.
1: Well just as I believe that there's a feeding frenzy still in the states for those opposed to Donald Trump many and varied People from all over the spectrum can't stand the guy. If he was going to be impeached or thrown out of office, I think it would have happened already. There on this side of the pond, I think if Corbyn was to be swiftly unseated, I think it would have happened already. I think that he's established himself now. But if elites keep trying to wipe out to stamp on any of this sort of popular opposition that comes up, you know, whether it's like for example, whether it's uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Or like, for example, you know, the way that the Democratic Party dealt with Bernie Sanders in the US, you know, somebody who many commentators said would actually have had a chance of beating Trump. But the way he was just prevented from running, if they keep doing this, it's like just playing whack-a-mole. These problems are not going away. These underlying systemic sort of meta-trends are going to keep popping up. And so that that, that will find an outlet these sentiments, this anger, will find an outlet. So it's a question of what's the best way to manage that and how to respond to it. And at the minute, as I say, it just seems to be suppress, demonise, and that's not working, and it's not going to work. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that in general. But I, but
0: again, I would I would argue for a kind of you know a careful analysis of each case because I mean you know one difference is that in um, in the US. Yeah, Trump, for all that he is kind of you know unpredictable and a maverick and you know not fantastic for the elites, he is part of the establishment, and so uh, in that sense, you know, there's going to be there's less of a kind of deep seated desire to to get rid of him in Britain. Jeremy Corbyn is clearly regarded as being a serious threat to the elites. And therefore, you know, they are very, very committed. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's become clear. You, you know, you talked earlier about the the kind of media, um, you know, consensus against him. I mean, it is absolutely shocking the extent to which even the liberal media is just, you know, is openly uh, prejudiced and, and, you know, um, biased against him. That's one thing. The other thing is that Donald Trump is fighting back. I don't see enough of that. I mean, you know, I think Jeremy himself as you know, he's very, very principled and, and in a certain way quite combative. But but, you know, where is the rest of the of 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 the kind of Labour left defending him, fighting his corner? You're not seeing enough of that. And so I'm not quite as um confident as you are that that this is definitively over and that he is fully established and fully secure in his position. I mean, I I very much hope you're right, but I, I think the left has to do a bit more, really. I think we have to be, because, you know, as I say, we, you know, Corbyn really is a threat to the establishment. Trump isn't in the end of the day. I mean, he's an irritant and he's, you know, he's not the man they want to have there. But, to be honest with you, they can live with him. They obviously can't live with Jeremy Corbyn, so they are going to do everything they can to crush him. And what worries me is that, yeah, this campaign about anti-Semitism and so forth, I mean, it's been pretty full on, and I do think there's a level of coordination to it, and obviously it does have the backing of... um, uh, I mean, it's quite clear that, you know, there there are kind of connections to the Israeli state and so on and so forth. But, I mean, you know, if you think this is bad, imagine what it's going to be like if and when Jeremy gets elected to be prime minister. You know, then you are going to see an absolute onslaught with all elements of the state and and lots of, you know, the bankers and the, and the big business people really trying to think very, very carefully about how they can destroy his project. So the fact that the left has retreated on this one, I find extremely worrying because it suggests that people don't really understand what the British state is and the extent to which, you know, if you're going to take on the vested interests in Britain, you've got to be up for a serious fight. You've got to be prepared to hold the line. You've got to be prepared to stand up for what you believe in. And, you know, if there's, a, if there's an attack on you, you've got to be prepared to fight back. And, you know, if, if you're not, you're gonna, you're gonna fall at the first hurdle once you're elected. So, you know, I, I just think people really need to start getting a bit more serious about neoliberalism is a deeply, in, neoliberal capitalism is a deeply embedded project. It's signed up to by the vast majority of the British elites, their middle class, many of their sort of more wealthy middle class supporters. You know, right across the board, the people that run the universities, the people who run the, 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 the media, most of the uh, legal system and so on and so forth. And if you want to take it on, you need to have a bit more of a backbone. And I'm afraid that the certainly sections of the Labour Party left has shown in the last couple of days.
1: Well, Chris, as we begin to bring things to a close for today. I just want to go back to something you mentioned close to the top of the hour about uh, a generation now of young people facing a future less well off than their parents when for the many decades certainly in the post-war period the opposite was true, that was increasing mm. prosperity and I was reminded of the book The Precariat. One uh, quote from the description of that book is, the young precariat class in Europe has become A serious issue in the early part of the 21st century and has been linked with major populist political developments, including the Brexit referendum and the presidency of Donald Trump. I've linked a lot of these things and you've put in some uh, well-expressed caveats about, you know, just not over-egging that particular pudding. Um, But I think that there are major global trends in place, been in place for a long time, in energy, uh, energy supply, uh, economic trends, uh, environmental trends that are above and beyond a lot of the day-to-day political machinations, but they have very real direct effects on all our lives. And I think that those going forward are going to completely change the face of global society. And I think that no political party at the end of of any colour is going to be able to ignore this. So I think what we're seeing now are the, the death throes of a lot of systems that we have depended on globally for a long time and I think a lot of our politics is a a poor response to that based in ignorance, denial, misunderstanding all sorts of things like that and the challenge then is for for those people um, who see the need for change to develop ways to navigate all of this chaos in order that we come out the other side with the possibility of salvaging a future and I think that Corbyn's Labour Party and other movements that we've talked about around the world all have a, a part to play in this. And I think that these changes are going to sweep away the basis for neoliberal capitalism. I think, and whatever replaces it, who knows? That's up for grabs.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're, you're right about that. I mean, clearly, you know, the whole sort of the crisis of of, of politics at the moment is 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 an expression of a much wider series of crises which are, you know, to do with obviously the the terrible state that the economy is in the world economy is in where, you know, profitability is is, is under threat and there's this huge levels of debt which are themselves a sign of a kind of deep malaise in the system. But also, as you again say, I mean, you know, I found the summer quite scary. I mean, it was quite nice to have such a, you know, best summer since 76 or even better. But it was also worrying because, you know, it's it's quite clear. You look across the, the maps of, you know, this wasn't just some uh, accidental isolated thing that happened in Britain. I mean, right across whole swathes of Europe and beyond, you know, temperatures were reaching beyond record levels and you know that that is almost definitely connected to to measured quantifiable climate change which is deeply terrifying it's going to have a a huge impact on all sorts of ecosystems uh, 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 around the world and there you do feel there's a level of turmoil and turbulence in the world which is very very frightening at the moment but the the question of how that those things play out and whether the human race is going to be able I mean it is that dramatic whether the human race is going to be able to to deal with these problems which I think we can I think we have the capacity to we have the science to we have the creativity to but the question of whether we do or not is going to be decided by by political responses and I mean that in the broadest sense not necessarily by particular elections or, or just by you know what happens in um, conventional politics but it is going to be decided by organized responses and by a kind of the 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 quality of the analysis and the policies and the programs that can be put forward by um by the left so the you know it still is that these are still political questions and whether or not we can stem the tide of inequality depends on whether we can you know create a movement strong enough to to challenge the super rich whether we can at least um, limit the damage done by climate chaos depends on whether we can create a democratic grassroots movement that is that has the, the strength to to control the big corporations and to insist on some sense of responsibility and carbon a reduction in carbon emissions and huge changes in the way we travel and the way we live our lives but these things can only be imposed by political movements in my opinion and so you know nothing's inevitable um these changes can happen and they can lead to you know Rosa Luxemburg said back in the uh, in the period after the first world war she said you know uh, uh, either socialism or barbarism and i think i think there's, that is really the you know either we're going to see the the reestablishment of 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 or the establishment of control over our societies by the vast majority of ordinary people um uh, and a kind of some sort of creative planning that actually does um, that does you know push an agenda of of uh, the benefits of the human race as a whole or we're going to see these this tiny percentage of the one percent pursuing their the interests of you know profit and banking come what may and those are the two options that face us today and it's a big it's a huge challenge but I mean you know one thing you can say about what's happened in certainly in britain where you have had corbyn you know doing so well it's, it's quite clear that lots of people recognize this i mean corbyn got ele- you know got 13 million votes in the general election that's 13 million people who were prepared to vote for a man who is against war who is against who wants to deal with climate change who wants to deal with racism who wants to deal with inequality and people knew that you know he get Corbyn was so vilified by the right wing and the press that no one voted for Corbyn without knowing who he was. So there clearly is a big, big constituency of people who want to do something about the the state of the world we're in and and have some pretty good ideas about how to do it. The question is, can those people get organised? Can we... Can we improve the sort of leadership of the movement and create a dynamic and thoughtful, but at the same time, very, very seriously committed movement for change quick enough? I think we can, but you know, it's going to be, it's
1: going to be a tough call. Okay. Two short final points. One potentially a bit pessimistic, one ultimately optimistic. In terms of the political response to some of these developments, Do you worry about draconian measures, um, outbreaks of violence, civil unrest as things go forward? You know, think of an establishment response to increasing unrest. But also, ultimately, what gives you hope? It sounds like in some of your comments that you just made there a moment ago that that lies there, really.
0: Yeah, I mean... You know, I was one of the people who's involved in organising the demonstrate the, the the movement against the Iraq War, and I mean, in a way, once you've been involved in a demonstration in which one to two million people marched um, against the government, uh, against a war that was happening thousands and thousands of miles away, not because they uh, were going to be immediately affected by them, uh, themselves by it, but because they thought it was wrong. They thought Blair was lying. They didn't want people to die in Iraq you know, and they were prepared to come out uh in their hundreds of thousands. Once you've been involved in that, in a way you think, well actually anything is possible. That, you know, it the idea that people don't care or are apathetic or are completely taken in by the mainstream is just clearly not true. I mean, as I say that, you know, in a way Jeremy Corbyn is to some extent the, the whole Corbyn phenomenon is a kind of long-term outcome of the anti-war movement and the campaigns that he's been involved in um, and you know they type he's been he's, he's won two elections in the Labour Party he did very well in the general election in the teeth of a massive media campaign the whole of the political establishment being against him ridiculing and demonizing him and yet people still came out for him and that makes me very very hopeful um even now the opinion polls show that people are still up for voting for him and you know that shows that you know there's lots of working people in britain who, who pretty much know what's going on and in a way what we need to do is to is to organise that opinion or or help people who have those opinions to get organised because you know the the question of leadership here is very very important and, and and that comes down to also whether you have a kind of participatory or whether you have a passive view of how change happens. I happen to believe that, you know, the kind of fundamental change we need is something that can only come about if people are mobilised and if people are doing themselves, if people are organised in their communities, in their workplaces, in their unions, on a massive scale that, you know, even if you did get Jeremy elected unless he's got a force of people who are prepared to come out and defend him and push him forward and, and change things from below, then really, you know, a handful of people in Parliament are not going to be strong enough to withstand the pressures of the elites and the and the, and the the establishment and the state that will be mobilised against them. So, yeah, I, I, I have an optimism, and the optimism is based on people's, clear capacity to protest to be creative to to come up with alternative ideas in the process of getting active but you know i do think that it's we have to be absolutely clear this isn't going to happen just through a process of an election And you know, people say oh we've got to wait till 2022 we can't wait till 2022 we can't have this government for another four years because there won't be any NHS left, there won't be any welfare state left. We have to put our faith in and our confidence in people's ability to, to take action themselves. And, you know, that's, that's where we have to go here, I think. I mean, clearly, the Corbyn Project is crucial, but it has to be linked to the kind of mobilisations and the mass movements. that, When you get down to it have always been the things that have made, you know, good changes happen. And that's where my optimism comes from and that's where my hope comes from for the future.
1: Chris, today we've been talking about your recent book, How the Establishment Lost Control. That's available everywhere, Uh, all the usual outlets, as we like to say. Just before we sign off, um, have you got an online presence that you might like to share with listeners or just anything else you'd like to put out there?
0: Um, Well, I mean, I'm on Facebook. Please do uh, link up with me there. I'm involved in the Stop the War Coalition, and Stop the Wall has got a big, you know, social media presence on all platforms. I'm also involved with Counterfire, which is a, a socialist organization, which, again, is out there on all platforms. Please hook up with that. And, um, yeah, if you want to get the book, get the book as well.
1: Excellent. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today on legalizedfreedom.com I've enjoyed it. Quite like the fact there's a siren in the background for that last bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's appropriate.